0: All right, well, last week, we were looking at Second Samuel chapter two, three and four, and we saw the triumph of David. We saw the betrayal of Abner. We also saw the betrayal of Ishbosheth and his demise. But uh, remember, we're in this book, Second Samuel. First, sec- First and second Samuel were originally one book and because they wouldn't fit on one scroll, they had to uh, split it up. So they just split it up. So there's no real difference here other than we call it Second Samuel, and that's good to know. And chapter 5 really acts as a uh, collection or think of it as a scrapbook of all the promises that God made to David and how they're fulfilled. And so I entitled the... The message tonight, God's purpose will come to pass, or you could think of it as God's promises to me will be fulfilled. Um, we've been looking at David for this long time in First Samuel and even Second Samuel here, and he's on this long journey from being a mere shepherd boy, right? Remember he was the, the last of eight sons, Jesse's sons, and, and Samuel went to pick the one that God wanted as king and went through his whole clan and said, well, you've got to have another one because none of these guys line up. And, well, we got one, but he's out in the fields with the, the sheep, and, you know, he's just a little kid. Well, bring him here, and he was the one. And so David was chosen by Samuel. He proceeded to um, go and, and, and reside there and, and be cared for there under Samuel's care. And so we followed David as this young shepherd boy, he was uh, anointed king. He, he fought in Saul's army, the, the acting king. He became a refugee, running for his life, because Saul, the king who the people chose, not the one who God chose, but the one who the people chose, because he was head and shoulders above everybody else, the people said, we want a king. We don't want God to be our king anymore. And so uh, he gave them Saul. Saul became jealous of David, started chasing him around. David becomes a refugee. He's running for his life. And it seems like every chapter is a new, new event in, in the life of David and Saul. You see David as a, a mercenary, really, in the Philistine army. He, he leaves uh, the land of Israel and goes over because Saul is just constantly chasing him. He's like, well, I'll just go to the enemy's land and um, kind of blend in with them. He won't chase me there. And he didn't. And so he went over there and he became a, a mercenary for the Philistine army, really. And then David, the king of one tribe of Judah, remember last last week he 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 was crowned king of, of Judah, and that was his tribe, and so that wasn't a really big thing. He had eleven other tribes that he wasn't king of. They were Saul's tribes, basically. They were the people that were loyal to Saul. David only had the one the one tribe as king. Saul is dead, as prophesied, in his sons. And so chapter 5 really acts to show God's promises that they are fulfilled to David, and how it pulls out some of the highlights that indicates God's faithfulness, and we can apply that directly to us. It's highlighted by the fact that this chapter is not necessarily in chronological order, as you read through it. It's not laid out that way. It's kind of like a hodgepodge of different Time zones pulled in, and so if you if you were going to put it in chronological order, verses one through th- three would be first, obviously, because that's when David is being uh, coronated king over all of Israel. We'll read about that, and then next the Philistines attack. So you could jump all the way down to verse seventeen through twenty-five, and then David would have secured Jerusalem. That's talked about in verses ten to t- or six to ten, and then in the last ten years. Of his life, the the, the king of Tyre, uh, Hiram, would have sent supplies to Dave, to build David's house, and that's verses eleven to twelve. So it's kind of a mixed up chapter. We're going to just go through it the way it's written, but just so you know, uh, those are the things that are that we're going to be looking at. So let's look at, at David's crowning first of all here. Um, in uh, verses one through through five, it says there in verse one. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. I just want to stop there. Now remember, the, the thing you have to understand is all these tribes of Israel were against, they've been against David. You know, he's, he's ruled for um, about seven and a half, or two and a half years as the, as the king of Judah, Seven and a half years, roughly, as the king who was uh, anointed kind of the king to be. And so he's had, you know, he rules a total of, of 40 years, we're told. All right. But here, all these tribes, after their king is dead and their, their warrior is, is dead, the guy that ran the army for Saul, uh, Abner, he's gone. And so they don't have anybody, and they realize that, you know what, we, we better make a deal here. We better figure out what's going to go on because David is king. He's going to be king, and we don't want to be on the wrong side of this guy because they knew David's history. They knew that he was a warrior. They knew what he did to Goliath. They knew all about him. And so this wasn't catching them by surprise, but it's, it's kind of impressive how they just kind of show up on his doorstep and say, oh, here, you know, we want to be, we want you to be our king. Uh, I would be questioning that. Now, if you want to get the details of how this actually happened, you can go over to First Chronicles. Remember, we said Chronicles gives the kind of the chronological thing of, the, of both uh, Samuel and Kings, and uh, it's, it's Chronicles twelve. And you can you can read through that, and you can find how many men they had. Basically, I'll t- just tell you, for time's sake, it's one hundred twenty thousand fighting men, and they all came to Hebron. So this wasn't. Something just a lighthearted, you know, a couple of guys stopped by. Hey, David, can we work out a deal? I mean, this was a massive army that showed up and there was a, uh, it, it, it talks about in Chronicles about a big feast and they fed all these people for three days, 120,000 people. That's, I don't know how big your events are, uh, Jenna, but that's a lot of people, right? I mean, to, to feed. Um, they did that over three days and uh, David had originally been anointed, remember, king by Samuel. All the way back in First Samuel chapter 16, I believe. And, uh, but he hasn't really taken over reign yet because King Saul was there. And he was a respecter of, of the king. And, you know, he served in the king's uh, court at one time. And then the king kind of went nuts and started chasing him around. And uh, so they kind of parted their ways. But eventually Saul was killed in, in battle. And uh, now we have kingless Israel. There's 11 tribes with no king. Judah's the only tribe that has a king, and that king is David. But being of the tribes of Israel, they understood that this was something that was promised by God. They knew that David was going to be their king sooner or later. This wasn't like a, you know, uh, a last ditch effort to throw over David they, they understood that as a matter of fact they even quote some of the promises that we'll look at tonight that were given to um, uh, David back in in first Samuel and so I think they knew all this the promises of God but they were fighting against it they were fighting against it uh, because Saul was alive and he was their active king so they were fighting for him and they were trying to chase down David and, and all these things. But they clearly understood all along that David was clearly the better king. He was a better warrior. He fought harder for Israel. Saul was always off chasing David. He didn't care about the people. Remember, some, sometimes they had to go get him from the battlefield, or to get him from chasing uh, David. They had to get king saul and say hey we're really having a problem over here with this battle oh okay and he'd give up his chasing david and go and help the the other folks so you know he was very uh he wasn't focused on what he was supposed to be doing and the people saw that they lost respect for him uh in the end and they started giving respect to david and so that made saul even more jealous and outrageous and so by the time uh of this third anointing, really is king. the first one is in first Samuel sixteen by Samuel, and that was just kind of by themselves there uh, with some people and then the second one was he was anointed king over the tribe of Judah. Now all these tribes come to him and say, "We want you to be our king and so here you have upwards of one hundred and twenty thousand people present at this anointing, so it wasn 't just a little side thing that they did off to the side, and they give us three reasons here why they want. David as their king and the first one we see there in verse one is he is the is of Israelite stock he, They said behold we are your bone in flesh In other words, hey, we're all family David, you know, we, we know we're on your side We're kin, you know, yeah, we've been chasing you all these years, but you know, that was just Saul's deal We, we really want you as our king and uh, so That's what they're pointing out there when they when they initially come to him in verse one And then in verse 2, you see some other reasons. It says, In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be a shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. Well, what's happening here? The people are quoting back to David the promises of God, of his reign over Israel. They're saying, "Hey, we know what promises God made. We have history, you know first of all we're we're of the same stock we 're all Israelis here, bone and flesh, and in the past, you know, really, David, I know King Saul was king, but uh, you were really the leader, kind of de facto leader you're the guy that, that that took out Goliath, you were the guy that helped us in several battles. Saul couldn 't do that, and then thirdly. They say there that basically uh, the third reason was not only because they had a history with them and they realized his leadership skills, but then the third thing there is that uh, the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd over my people. So they understood that this was God's promised prophecy. This was something that was going to happen. And so that's the most prominent reason, really, that they list. They kind of warm them up with some nice things. Hey, we're, 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 we're family, and, you know, uh, you know, we know that you're a great warrior. You've led us before. And besides that, I mean, this is a promise of God. We can't, we can't go wrong there. And so God's promises are fulfilled. And that's the note that this chapter really, I want to leave ringing in your ear as you walk out of here tonight, is that God fulfills his promises. We need constant, do we not, reminders That God is a faithful God. That God will bring about what he promises. That he will keep his promises. Uh, It may be a a simple thing to know, but it's not always a simple thing to believe. Because we all have issues at times. Um, you, You think about how God fulfilled the promise for David. You know, I remember when I was younger, when I was in grade school and even high school, and, you know, I remember the last, like, Couple weeks of class before summer let out. It was like we were just yearning to get out of class, and it's like the hours just grinded on, and it was hot and getting humid, and you know, we didn't have air conditioning in the classes, and you know, it's just a different whole world back there in Pennsylvania. But I remember just sitting in class and hearing the teacher talk, but totally tuning out and just thinking, wow, pretty soon we'll be able to go fishing, we'll go up in the hills and, you know, go hiking, do all these things we do over the summertime. And, and, and that's kind of what this has been for, I think, not so much for David, but for everybody that's been going along on this journey with us. It. It's like, okay, when is David actually going to be the king? <laughs> you know, we've been seeing this, we've been seeing it prophesied, we've been seeing it promised, but he had to go through years of difficulties in his life of trials, of challenges. Um, Think about it with me. He had to risk his life against Goliath. Remember when he took out Goliath, nobody else would even go up against this guy. And he realized that God would be faithful, and so he did. Um, He had to fight on the front lines for Saul. Saul sent him right out there. He had to suffer betrayal by his king and his countrymen. We saw that play out. He lost his wife, he lost his best friend, he lost his job, he lost his reputation and his house. I mean, basically he lost everything. He had to leave his country, serve among the pagan nations of the Philistines, among the idolaters, being far away, removed from the temple that he was to worship at as an Israelite. Um, He had to endure difficulty in the wilderness. He had to survive Ishbosheth, Abner, Joab, all those guys wanted his hide at one point in time or another. But you know what? Through all that, all that, God, what? He kept his promise. He kept his promise to David. And sometimes our lives can feel like that. It feels like you're on a David journey. You know, sometimes we lose hope. We wonder, well, what's the purpose of this? You know, I really sense that God has a purpose, but what is it? And we have to remember to remember to look back and go, no, wait a minute. God is in control here. I'm not. He has a purpose. He has a plan. He keeps his promises. And uh, there was no moment when God had forsaken David. There was no moment when God was not in charge. There was no moment when it seemed uncertain that God's will would come to pass. And see, that's how we have to approach life. There's delays. There's difficulties. But those aren't indication of failure on God's part. Those are just part of his plan. I took a gentleman to, the, to uh, uh, picked him up at the airport this morning on an early ride, like 4.15 or whatever it was. And uh, he was, had a heavy accent. He was from the Ukraine, but he was Jewish. So we started talking. It was about a <laughs> half hour ride. So we started talking, and he, uh, he started telling me how his oldest son... Is uh, going to uh, Hebrew University over in in Jerusalem, and I go, wow, oh yeah, he's re- learning the Torah, and you know, uh, we at a certain time of the year, I go, I go over to Israel and we go to the Wall and and we learn about the Torah together, and he was just really into this, and and uh, he was uh, talking about how in the Ukraine and in, in in Russia when that all when that all happened, he came here in the eighty eighty I think something like that, but he said. The whole socialist movement that, that moved in and, and started to take over, it really limited our freedom to worship. And we started talking about, you know, what it's like to be an Israeli and of God's chosen people. And, and he was very conservative in his approach to Scripture. You know, he was very, oh, yeah, God's promises are true. You know, and so I, I shared this with him. I said, you know, whenever I run into somebody... That, that doesn't believe God exists, and they say, well, give me one, one evidence that God exists. I always say the same thing. The nation of Israel. <laughs> the people of Israel. <laughs> I mean, look at, these people should have been wiped out a long time ago. You know? If not even for their own disobedience, right? But what? God's promises are being fulfilled. And see, just like he fulfills the promises for Israel, God fulfilled the promises for David as he does for us. And so here, this moment... In time, he's he's really, the it's the summary of David's 40-year reign. Look at what it says here, um, down a little further there, when it says, you shall be a shepherd of my people. He shall be a shepherd of my people. Interesting thing, this is the first time this word appears in the Old Testament and is applied to an individual. The word appears... In Genesis 48 and 49, but it's speaking of God being a caretaker, a shepherd. But here, when it's referring to David, it's the first time in Scripture that that word is used describing an individual. Uh, and so w- when, you, when you look at that, that verse, and they're, they're stating the, the, the promise, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel. Shepherd is a way of saying king or caretaker. Okay, that's kind of what that is. Um, The the role of a shepherd, whether it's back then or even today as a pastor, okay, is basically threefold. It's to lead, feed, and heed the flock that's entrusted to you. Lead, feed, and heed. That's what we're called to do. And see here, David, who was a, a young shepherd boy at one time, now he's shepherd king over all Israel. And if you want an interesting read, you can read Psalm 23, and it talks about, you know, the whole shepherd thing. But you can also go over to Ezekiel chapter 34. And chapter 34 kind of pits the uh, hired shepherds, the hired hands, the, not, the, the, the shepherds that aren't really true shepherds, um, against the true shepherds. And, and Ezekiel talks about that. Uh, Jesus talked about that, right, about being a good shepherd in John 10. Uh, Look over there with me real quick. John 10. Because this is a good place to... John chapter 10. And Jesus was dealing with the shepherds of Israel, the Pharisees and Sadducees, in his day, who were not doing things the proper way. If you look at at John uh, 10 and look at at verse... uh, well, he starts right out there talking about um, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way. That man is a thief and a robber. But go all the way down a little further there. When he says, uh, in verse, sorry, um, it's verse uh, eleven, he says, "I am the good shepherd." I mean, the whole thing's a good read, but for time's sake. I am a good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is hire, a hired hand and not a shepherd, but, and the idea is they're acting like a shepherd, but they're not. <laughs> they're a hired hand. Who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I, he, he reiterates, am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And he goes on and he talks there. But the important thing is, is to realize that you know, Jesus even made a distinction between good shepherds and bad shepherds. Uh, he's referred to in Hebrews chapter 13 of the, as the great shepherd. Or in 1 Peter chapter 5, as the chief shepherd. And so one of, our, one of our roles as believers is to shepherd people. That's what we're called to do. That's what discipleship is. You don't have to be a pastor to be in the role of being a shepherd. Um, and so as we, we fulfill that, we have to stop and we have to say, well, what, what, does that, what does that look like? Well, it looks like Christ. We're to imitate the good shepherd. We're to care, to heed and feed and lead the flock, and whether that's a whole entire church, or whether that's a study group, or whether that's somebody who comes to Christ under your watch and you're just discipling them, you know, you're to shepherd their their souls. And so, remember these these people that are saying these things to David have been hunting him down for twenty years. For seven and a half years, they resisted David as king. He's been king over uh, Judah and for the last two and a half years they've had a civil war literally within their nation dealing with David and so they were divided 11 to 1 Judah against everybody else and so ever since 1st Samuel chapter 16 he was anointed king what's interesting is these people never once did they recognize David as king nor did they acknowledge David as king because Saul was king obviously they did that their whole their life would be at stake but they knew that david was going to be king and see when you stop and you think about it they had the truth they were exposed to the truth right i mean they heard the same prophecies that david heard they heard the same promises that david they saw how saul king saul was acting and how david was acting and hands down, they always favored, favored David. They always said, well, this would make him much better. He's a much better leader. We respect him a lot more. He's willing to go to the mat for us. He's willing to do whatever it takes to help us. And plus, he's, God's on his side. So we recognize that one day, we know one day that he is going to be king, but we're not going to acknowledge it. Matter of fact, we're going to try to hunt him down and kill him. Um and you, you, you ask yourself, why would they do that? It's the same reason people in our society today know all about Christ. They know all about church. They know all about everything that we could possibly tell them. But they're not Christians. And sometimes we go, how could that be? They have the truth sitting right there in front of them. What are they doing with it? Romans 1 tells us what they do with it, right? They're suppressing it, right? They're pushing it down. They don't want to acknowledge it. They know it. You know, God has has indicated in our own in our own being that we know that God exists. He's given us a conscience. You know, we know what's right and what's wrong, but what do people do? They suppress it, and so that's exactly what they were doing here. And so, what 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 the people are doing are saying, "Well, you shall be the shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince." over Israel. Some people say, "Well, why did he use why do they use the word prince there and not king?" Kind of interesting. He's king. Why would they acknowledge him as king? Well, maybe they came full circle and they realized, you know what? There is one only king, God. And you're God's servant to us as a prince. That's what some people say. But it's not the word for king. It's the word for prince in the Hebrew. And so it's it's a very uh purposeful word that he uses there and I think that it's it's really acknowledging that you know what we don't want to ever go back to the idea that we think our king is the savior of everything there's one above our king I think they were realizing while God raises up authorities he puts them in into place whoever they may be and he also takes them down because remember David was not Somebody that you would look at and go, oh, wow, what an incredible, Saul was. He was head and shoulders above everybody. The people picked him for that very reason. But where was David when he was picked? He was out, you know, with the sheep because he was just this little little run of a guy. And so when you, you stop and you, you think about these things, you know, the other principle that comes to mind is you have Saul, this, you know, probably handsome, you know, tall good stock of a man that the people were attracted to. And then you have little David here. Um, and yet the principle that, you know what, God raises up, right, the small, the weak, and he he brings down the prideful, that's that's playing out right before our eyes. And uh, so it's, it's an important principle that you see from cover to cover within the pages of Scripture. But when you stop and you ask yourself about shepherds, you know what kind of shepherd do you want? Do you want a, a shepherd that is is just gonna, is, is just out to fulfill their own ambition, or to to uh, feather their own nest, or or even to further their own career? There's there's people that are in ministry. Even I'm ashamed to say that that's what it's all about. It's bigger and better. You know they work their way up the chain, and you know they have. There's no loyalty. There's nothing. It's just how can I get to a bigger church or a bigger ministry or a worldwide event or whatever. That's what they want, and it's all about themselves. And that's Jesus says that's not a good thing. If that's the case, Um, when you're applying for the job of shepherd, I think seekers of fame and popularity and wealth they don't need to apply. (laughs) They just don't need to apply because they don't meet the the standard. Well, we see here in verse 3, it says, So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel, over all of Israel, all 12 tribes. So it's progressive for him. He's anointed initially by Samuel. Nobody even recognizes him as king for years. That was kind of a private thing. Then he's... Uh, anointed as king over Judah, and now he's king over all Israel, and they came to him. He didn't seek them out. He wasn't out there demanding, you need to worship me, I am the king. No, they, they came to him. Why? Because it was the right thing to do. Uh, they had no leader. There was nobody left. Their king was dead. King Saul was dead. The leader of the army was dead. So, you know, they, they had no option here so they did what would be best for their people so they all came together and that's where first chronicles uh, chapter 12 that uh, talks about that whole period when they anointed him so there's over 120,000 people there at this anointing of david as king over israel well the the party doesn't last too long it gives us kind of a time frame here of his his reign david was 30 years old when he began to reign and he was uh, and he reigned for 40 years. Now, that's that's quite a while. All right? And so, at, at verse 5 there, it says, At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, seven and a half years. And at, Jer- in, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And so, it, it kind of gives, this is his resume, you might say. And then there in verse um, 6, Move on to David's city here. It talks about the king and his men, verse 6, went to Jerusalem. Now, a couple things about Jerusalem. Jerusalem, up to this point, never belonged to Israel. It wasn't part of Israel. It was occupied by um, the Jebusites, which were a clan of the Canites, And so, it didn't belong, at, it didn't belong to, to Israel at this time. All right. Even though it had been promised to them. Remember the promise to Abraham back in Genesis when God said, hey, as far as this point to this point, this is all going to be Israel's. Well, there's Jerusalem smack dab in the middle, and it wasn't Israel's. And so you can only imagine what people began to do. Uh, mock. You know, it's kind of like years ago, even before my time, when Israel was just kind of a desert, nothing there. And I remember hearing about people who would take portions of the the Old Testament that's talked about Israel being a land flowing with milk and honey and the trees and the foliage. And and they would say, the Bible's clearly not clear or true. Look at this, Israel's a wasteland. You know, until they understood irrigation. And now it's one of the most agriculturally uh, prosperous Nations in the world. What's that? Sure. Well, yeah, but I mean, they, they have incredible agriculture over there. I mean, they, they produce agriculture for most of the world because they're geniuses at, at irrigation. And so all the promises now that look like, oh, that's, that's a farce, that never happened. Well, now it's happened. Okay the idea that Israel will maintain that promised land, okay, you look at the Palestinians, you have the Israelis and they're bartering over this land. Well, how's that going to fit in? Well, eventually Israel will have all that land, and when you go back and you look at the original borders, it includes a lot more than just Palestine, but that will all happen in time, and you know it's going to be in God's time, not ours, but so at this time, Jerusalem did not belong to, the, uh, to Israel at all. But it says they went down to Jerusalem. I think they picked that because it was an independent place. It wasn't in Saul's territory. okay, And it wasn't in David's territory when he was in Judah. So it's kind of an independent place. So he said, hey, I'm going to go there and uh, do this. And it says, against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, and this is where they start to taunt him, they're taunting David. If they knew anything about David, they'd they, they realize this is not a good thing. But it says, you will not come in here. This was like a fortress, okay? Um, it says, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. I mean, that's like, you know, that's like having a bully come to your house and say, you know what, you think you're going to come in here? Yeah, my little brother's going to take care of you. You know what I mean? It's just ridiculous, right? I mean, it's a ridiculous claim. But that's what they said. They're taunting him, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, verse 7, David took the stronghold of Zion, Jerusalem. That is the city of David. Okay, this is the first time it's acknowledged as the city of David there. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Now, he's not... You know, don't think that David's just this horrible person. He's going after crippled people. He's just using their verbiage against them. You know, uh, sometimes politicians do that. They get in trouble for that. You know, they use the verbiage of their opponent against them. And it, it comes back to sting them sometimes. But here, that's what David is basically doing. Um, he says in verse, the next verse, the next part, he says, Therefore it is said the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lives lived in the stronghold and called it, the city of David and David built the city. So not only did David take the city, okay but he begins to expand the city. Remember he's a leader. He's got tremendous support behind him. Uh, he, he, he built the city all around from the millow oh, is kind of a terrace it's kind of think of it as a town square kind of a thing inward a terrace around the outside there. And then in verse 10 and David became greater and greater. Why? For the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. So once again, you see the affirmation of God upon David's life. God, David is doing what God wants him to do. He's trying to do his best. And as a result, he is um, being blessed by the Lord because of his obedience at this point. Now, you know, when you, when you think of... of you know Jerusalem, it, it had a long history. Jerusalem did. It was basically uh, referred to as Salem, which King Melchizedek was king over. Okay, uh, so it goes all the way back. All right, so there's there's a tremendous history here, and it was never in Israeli occupation or possession at all until David took it here. And so when he did that, he's making a statement. And he's saying, "Okay, as a new king, I'm not going to just go back to where you know uh, Saul was. I'm going to I'm going to set up my own establishment here for the Lord." And it says that he became greater and greater for the Lord. The God of hosts was with him. Verse 11, you begin to see some of these uh, <coughs> things that happen. And remember, these are not chronological, but We're just going to take him as such, because to jump around would probably confuse you. But verse 11, it says, And Hiram the king of Sire sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. So it's just an honoring thing to do. Uh, I'm going to keep him on the right side. Verse 12, And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Right, So he's not doing it for his own. Remember, Saul was doing things, what, on his own. He was all concerned about Saul. David's not. He's like, I just want to do what, I mean, even when King Saul, or when Saul was king, David still wanted to do what God wanted him to do. And he felt very strongly about respecting those in authority over you. So even though Saul was trying to kill him, and he had many opportunities to kill the king, he didn't do it. Why? Because he respected. That position he respected God too much to do that, and now he 's in that position, and uh he's he's maintaining his character his his integrity and everything so far, and he 's doing things on behalf of the people uh, for for the people of Israel well, then it says here in in verse thirteen, David took more concubines, remember we talked about this I think it was uh last week or the week before that, you know, one of the reasons these kings would do this is to secure property. All right, secure an area, secure a region. So they thought, you know what, if I go over there and I take a wife, then they're kind of my kin too. So now, you know, you're, you're part of me and we're part of you. So th- that's how they would expand their, their thing. And so God is not endorsing polygamy here, anything like that. But it, it was what they did. So he, he takes these... Uh, these, these concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And then it lists the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Uh, Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, uh, Elishua, Nepheg, Jephiah, Elishama. Eliadid, and uh, Eliphileth. Yeah, I always get that wrong. Eliphileth, So these are his his children that were born to him there in uh, Jerusalem. Now, as it continues, you see these battles erupt. When the Philistines, they're still around, heard that David had been anointed king over all of Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, so they're realizing we got a problem. Now we don't just have King David who's over this little tribe of Judah; we got King David who's over <laughs> all the tribes of, of, of Israel, and he's got a massive army. He doesn't just have 400 men anymore; he's got upwards of 120,000 in his army. And you can read about David's mighty men back in, Chronic, or in First Chronicles there, chapter 12, I think. It gives you all the details, how many from each tribe, everything. But when they heard about this, they said, yeah, we got to do something. We got to go take this guy out. And so they went up to search for David, but David heard of it. See, this is one thing about David. He wasn't, he wasn't naive. He wasn't stupid. He probably had people out there, spies, realizing, okay, now I'm king. I need some security here. You go see what their plans are. And, uh, you know, whatever he, he, or maybe God told him, who knows, but whatever, he, he heard about it. And uh, he went to, down to the stronghold, kind of a, an area where his men and him would be, be safe. And it says in verse 18, now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord. Once again, David isn't just this big hot shot king calling the shots. What does he do? He goes to the Lord. He's like, Lord, okay, you've, you've guided me up to this point. Your promises have come true. I'm not going to give up on you. What do I do? Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? It's kind of a good plan. You know, it's kind of like saying, hey, teacher, um, if I take the test, well, I get a hundred on it, <laughs> you know, and their answer is always right. Oh yeah, you'll get all. Oh, will take the test. Now you're going to flunk it. Oh, can I take it next week? You know, it would be kind of a nice thing to know if you're going to fail or not. And uh, God provided that for him. And so the Lord said to him, David, go up, and I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. Verse 20. And David came to of uh, 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 Perazim, and David defeated them there and he said the lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood like a bursting flood it's just like wow got it look at what god has done this is crazy and he's just really you know all the all the uh credit goes to the lord here that's what he's doing it would have been very easy for him to say yeah look at what i did you know that's not what he's doing he's saying no the lord has has help us out here. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perizim, and the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And so, it was kind of like just, you know, the Lord just allowed this, this flood to come through of, of David's men and just wipe these people out. And then it says, and the Philistines left their idols there, David, and they carried him away. And then in verse 22, and the Philistines came up yet again. Okay, they weren't done. Obviously, they had some squirters that got away, and they went and got some other guys, and they came back. And they spread out in the valley of uh, Rephaim, and David inquired of the Lord, and he said, he asked him once again, God, what should I do here? Should I go up? Will you give him in my hand? He said, we're going to change things up a bit here, David. You shall not go up. But go around to the rear. I mean, don't you love this kind of guidance? I mean, wouldn't that be awesome to have that kind of a, you know, GPS system for your whole life? It's just going to tell you what to do. And come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. I mean, it's, it's such a neat thing the way God has has taken this and, and and used it for his glory and then the last verse there, and David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. and so uh, you know when you when you think of of this this chapter, a couple of things you can take away is four reasons. I'll just give them to you quickly. Here, four reasons you should trust God's promises. Four reasons you should trust God's promises. The first one is this. Simply, God's promises stand in opposition. It stand in spite of opposition. They stand in spite of opposition. It doesn't matter what, what is coming against you. If God promised something was going to take place, it will happen. And that's kind of what, what verses 1 through 3 is all about. You think of all the opposition that David had to go through to become king. And yet we see it kind of unfold right before our eyes. And so it doesn't matter what kind of, or who is, or what is opposing you at all. If God has, through his word or whatever, promised something's going to take place, you can count on it. And, you know, if we don't have that, uh, boy, we're in big trouble. Secondly, God's promises stand in spite of passing time. In spite of passing time uh sometimes we we get you know we get weary don 't we you know well, oh you know even in the New Testament, it talks about them you know oh when's you know we 've heard about the coming, you know his coming when 's that going to come they 're mocking right they 're mocking uh, it doesn 't matter how long god you know i mean with god it, time is irrelevant, right he transcends time, so you know that 's why the Bible says you know you know what, what one day is a thousand years with God or whatever. It's just it's just, you know, it's irrelevant It doesn't matter to him. He, he doesn't even adjust his time. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't get up He transcends time Every day is like today with God whether it was 10 years ago 100 years ago 500 years ago or 5,000 years in the future. It doesn't matter. It's today He sees everything at once because he transcends time second Timothy or second Peter Chapter 3, this is where this um, talks about this, these these people. It says, they will say, talking about the day of the Lord, I'll pick it up in verse 1. It says, this is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of a reminder and this is good for us to hear as well, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets in the, communica- in the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all Things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, there's no God. What are you guys? This is a fairy tale. Nothing's going on. It's just grinding on as usual. Verse 5, For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of the water, and through water by the word of God. And that by means of the world that then existed, was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. You know, everything we see around us is going to be gone. Everything. Trees, animals, everything. It's going to be wiped out. It's going to be gone. This is not our home. God's going to create a brand new one for us. All right? and And that's kind of the... The neat thing about when you think about heaven, you know, you're not sitting on a cloud somewhere. Yeah, you're not doing that. I mean, you're, it's in the new, new heavens and new earth. So we're going to have lots to do. Uh, so uh, verse, verse 8, he says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. In other words, it's irrelevant. He transcends time. The Lord is not slow, look, to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will be melt, will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells. You know, that's that's what we have to look forward to. God's promises stand in opposition in spite of opposition, they stand in spite of passing time. And God's promises come to pass through obedience. I think that's what really verse seven was all about there when when David wanted to, to do what the Lord wanted him to do. It says nevertheless, David stook, took the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. That is something that was promised, okay, and it was through his obedience that it came to pass. And then the last thing there, God's promises come to pass with blessing, and you see the blessings on on uh, David and Israel there in in verses uh, eleven and forward. So when you when you you think of these things, you know, I pray that that's an encouragement. To you that, you know, just because this was David and uh, God promises certain things for us too. you know, uh, he promises that he will keep us in the hollow of his hand, that he will not uh, uh, turn from us. Okay, that we're secure in Christ doesn't matter what happens to us down here. That's irrelevant. One day we're promised a a place in a new heaven and a new earth and we will have glorified bodies and I mean all those things when we when we reach that point in time it's going to be like wow okay Uh, it was worth the wait you know I remember when I started off I said you know at the end of the school year back in Pennsylvania I just remember those final weeks just grinding on grinding on grinding on but then I can also remember in the middle of the summer I didn't even think about those weeks anymore they were nothing even though at the time they seemed like this big you know horrible burden i was carrying trying to get out get out of school for summer but you know what when you're when you're enjoying what god wants you to do and things like that you know, the trials are worth it and and that's what we have to kind of be reminded of sometimes so